What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Morning to have a few special guests with us today. We're talking about cross-cultural research, um, and we have Dr. Lennon Graho and uh, Sam Hamden. Did I say your last name right, Sammy? Yeah, Hamden. Correct me, please. So now I'm very excited to have our two guests with us today, Dr. Lennon Graho and Sami Hamden. Um, I don't know, would you both like to introduce yourselves? I'm very excited about all, all of the things that you've accomplished and you can share with us today. Dr. Graho? Hi everyone, I am Lennon Graho. I am joining you right now from New York City. I am um, currently an associate professor of Rehabilitation and Regenerative Medicine at Columbia University. I am very, very excited to soon be joining the faculty and the leadership team in the program in Occupational mm -hmm. Therapy at Washington University. Um, my research is in the nexus of building evidence and applications for occupational therapy theory, uh, development and validation of occupational therapy instruments, including uh, cross-validation of occupational therapy instruments, and the scholarship of teaching and learning, particularly um, studying effective pedagogies and the impacts of culture and cultural interactions on um, learning outcomes of occupational therapy students. Um, thank you for inviting us uh, today. I'm very excited to be doing this. Sammy? And hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sammy Hamdan. I am speaking to you all from Saudi Arabia, uh, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. That's my hometown, Jeddah. It's currently at 7 p.m. So, yeah, uh, I am an occupational therapist. I graduated with a bachelor degree and master degree uh, from Cooper College. Somehow, I came back to Saudi Arabia now. And now I'm practicing here in, uh, in Saudi at an uh, acute hospital. I enjoy my time with older adults. And I am a member of the diversity, equity, and inclusion at uh, the AOTA. Yeah. And, oh, Thank you, I'm wearing, sorry, I'm wearing a blue shirt with a bucket that has a red and types and wearing glasses. Thank you so much for including that, Sammy. I often forget that, but I really appreciate that you include that description. Before we get into cross-cultural research, I thought maybe the first question we should ask is, what is culture? When we're talking about cross-cultural research, what does that mean to either or both of you? I don't know who would like to answer first. Sammy, do you wanna go first? No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, it, for me, it's a, uh, really a, a broad, multi-encompassing terminology. Um, 
simplified, I believe that culture is a way of life. It's a way and, and a, a manner or a pattern of doing life. It's, it, it includes attitudes, values, beliefs, patterns of doing, behaviors, manner um, of attitudes towards others that are deeply um, impacted or influenced by a variety of factors, a person's age, gender and sexual identities, uh, religions, uh, race and ethnicity, country of origin, the people we work with, the place where we have where we have been born, the places we've moved to. So it's a it's a it's a global terminology for me that um, is not sort of it's difficult to simplify because it's a, a complex manner of life, a complex way of life influenced by so many factors and and influences. Yeah, and yeah, I'm going off what you just said, Lan. It's it it all depends on how the person view it, basically. It's it doesn't I don't feel I don't know, jump anyone can jump in, but I don't feel there's a specific definition of culture. And to me, it's a way of living and functioning, and it depends from one person to another. And this kind of way of living and functioning, they all influence based on the attitude, behaviors, and sometimes the environment, how the environment would look at us and vice versa, and so on. And so yeah, it's, it's a very interesting word that has or encompasses so many different meaning and to, uh, to each one of us. That's a really good point, though, Sammy, that like, you know, maybe there isn't really a clear definition of culture, but this is a, a theme, though, that we think about in occupational therapy a lot. So maybe how do you view culture as influencing occupational therapy? Yeah, so, um, uh, go ahead, Sam. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> It's 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 a situational factor. It's um, uh, I don't like viewing culture as a container that defines the person. Rather, it's a it's a situated context where the person shapes the culture or the environment, and the environment and the culture shapes the person in in any transaction. Like for example, I'm I'm a Fil I'm Filipino and I'm an immigrant from the United uh, from. To the, to the United States from the Philippines. And I've been here for 13 years. I am shaped by my culture having been raised and, and educated in the Philippines. And I've moved to several uh, cities and states here in the US that has influenced me. And I believe I've influenced the spaces that I've been uh, at. I lived in St. Louis. I currently live in New York. I've been in Austin, Texas. I came to the United States by way of Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And all of that has influenced me. And I want to believe I've influenced the cultures and spaces where I've been. So it's a very situational context. And, you know, like what Sam has said, there's no one way of defining or viewing it because it's it's an ever-evolving and ever-multi-influencing kind of factor. And, and yeah, and when, when, when we look at it from the OT perspective, we always focus on saying client-centered, client-centered. We almost always forget there is the culture piece that shapes how the client or how the, the individual would perform his or her or their uh, activities. So it's essential to look the, at the environment and how would they shape 
and it's it's interesting. I just remember something uh, during the pandemic, and there was no paper towels in the U.S. All of a sudden, so I was like, "Whoa!" And everyone was like, "Oh, we should be using bidet and so on." And I was like, "Well, I'm used to all of that because that's part of our culture, uh, my culture in Saudi Arabia. We use bidet, but it was an interesting uh, uh, point of view that." many of my friends were like oh we don't use that so i was like hmm that's very interesting and when i look at the ot specifically i was like hmm i didn't learn that i have to kind of like teach an individual how to use a bidet even though i know how to use a bidet and so on and so it was kind of interesting uh shift in in that culture that i lived in in the u.s so yeah it's um, interesting. I just uh, want to touch on something I think both of you referenced, right, as we think about culture and cross-cultural kind of work and research as like U.S. context, extra U.S. context, right, like international context. But within the U.S. context, there's also this wide variety of kind of um, culture based on how you're raised and, you know, different cities. You, you were mentioning when in the, you know, you've lived in all these different places. And I imagine there are subtle differences, right? Um, even within spaces. So I think how we think about that um, is so important. And so I want to kind of add to this question and ask, you know, when we think about research, um, how do we, you know, or do we kind of consider that and how, you know, do or should we be thinking about culture when it comes to some of the research work we do as well. I think it's a very, very important underexplored or underexplained factor in the way we frame our methodologies, the way we frame our research questions, even just the way we frame the constructs we like to study. Um, I'm in the process right now of I think the term we're using is decolonizing occupational therapy, um, particularly with understanding occupational therapy theories and how it's being applied in other cultures. Um, uh, as part of this, and this really was um, the impetus for this, is I'm, I'm currently um, helping with a cross-cultural validation of an assessment tool that I developed here in the United States for literacy from a Western perspective. And there was interest to cross-culturally adapt the tool to, um, uh, to Turkish and to the Filipino culture. And one of the important things I've learned and one of the important things we need to unpack is that many of the constructs we use in occupational therapy come from very Western perspectives and the way it's being interpreted, measured, and even treated or from an intervention perspective from across the globe and from different cultures will be defined very differently. I like to use the example of independence uh, as one thing, because a lot of times when we do OT interventions and even research here, one of the most important outcome measures we use is independence. And a lot of times the default for an occupational therapist is to use a measure that defines independence as the client being able to do the activity, the task or the occupation on their own without the assistance of others. And in fact, many of the outcome measures we use measure levels of assistance, prompting and cueing as the definition for independence. But for many cultures, it is a culturally sanctioned responsibility 
for a caregiver to actually be able to assist a client or a person perform some of these daily activities. And in so pushing the notion of independence as not being able to receive any cues, prompts, or assistance is a completely different form of understanding. I, I like to say that in the Philippines, we value interdependence. When we talk to clients, it's the, the caregiver, regardless of age and regardless of status in life, is always there. And an extension to the client is are the caregivers, family members, partners, spouses, etc. And I think it's very important and we, that when we frame our research questions, our methodologies, the measures that we use, we look at that from that very important perspective. What perspective am I bringing in to the methods that I use for research? That was a fantastic response. I just want to, I, and I was just thinking of something else. So this topic actually was prompted because Sammy brought up in a conversation with me about the importance of cross-cultural research and that there wasn't enough attention to this topic. So I was just wondering, Sammy, what, what, what do you view as, why is cross-cultural research so important or where did you see the gap that brought you to ask this question? It's so my answer is linked to what Lennon just mentioned. Uh, both of us somehow or somewhat we share similar uh, culture. Here it's, it's yes, there is a, the independency and there is all of that, the individual. But again, we have to look at the caregiver, the family. That's more the collectivism that who's, who's around that person, who's around that patient, who's around that client. So almost always I would have to address the family and then go back to address the patient so it's kind of like all right so who am i trying to give the advice or the education so it's kind of like so and then i have to measure did i even accomplish that successfully do they can the family demonstrate all of that can can they so it's all of that pressure like am i doing everything am I supposed to be doing as I learned in the U.S. or that or uh, as I learned in the U.S. So, so, so that's that's what prompted all of that since I came back to the to Saudi Arabia. So yeah. I'm going to just add on to that a little bit. So Sammy, you like what you just brought up is this kind of challenge of bringing back what you learned in your OT education in the United States and translating that to your practice in Saudi Arabia. What have been the major barriers for you in doing that, other, th other than what you had just mentioned, if there's anything else? So some of them are basically basic ADLs. Like I used to work in a SNF or skilled nursing facility in California, and I used to just, that's part of my role as an OT is to assess how they do showering. And I would literally be in the shower with my clients. And since I came back here, it's kind of like, hmm, you're not even going to be inside the restroom with me. You, you can just teach me how I can do all of that while we're like in the room, but you're not allowed to be inside the restroom with me. So it's kind of like that, kind of like that barrier. And, and it depends from one, one person to another. Sometimes many people are open to have that experience, having another individual or a therapist inside their restroom to kind of like guide them and teach them how they do daily function with uh, with the by looking at the 
the different components of the activity and so on, on while others it's like no and when we look at the religion perspective there is the male and versus female so as a male it's going to be or it is harder for me to kind of like do all those basic adls in the bathroom with another female so that's a whole different components that i'm adding so it's kind of like hmm, is education versus demonstration better not better so all of that questions that in my mind so constantly it sounds that. like a lot of what you learned in your ot education then in the united states was really focused on culture like u.s western culturally driven activities of daily living and what in the United States, they perceived to be things that people would want to be doing, and there wasn't necessarily a focus on other things um, that people in other cultures or other countries may be doing. So I was just wondering if either of you have a thought on what, I guess, what could we be doing in occupational therapy to advance cross-cultural research? Um, a really, really great question, and, and Kelly, I think you should, you can be, um, you can help me with this. But you know, in anthropology, one of the first things I was first trained as a qualitative researcher became before I became a mixed methods and quantitative researcher, and one of the things that I really, really took as part of my training in qualitative research, particularly, you know, I was trained um, uh, by an anthropologist, is this notion of um, etic and emic perspectives, the perspective of being part of that culture and the perspective of being an outsider of that culture. And a lot of times, you know, the line and the reflexivity, the owning of privilege and biases by researchers are not always reflected when we publish our research of what perspective are we coming in from when doing this particular research. Case, for example, is that, you know, I've maintained my relationship with um, the Philippines and maintained my research collaborations mm -hmm. with the Philippines for so many years, even as I really nurtured my, my, my teaching and my research here in the U.S. But I had to be very cognizant and reflexive as a researcher and as a person that my lens, that the lens that I'm using as a researcher, even if I grew up and became educated in the Philippines, is now influenced by a variety of perspectives. And so when I do analysis and interpretations and conversations with my partners in the Philippines when we do research, I need to be reflexive and cognizant that I am not asserting the Western lens that I have now embraced a lot in, in combination with my Asian and, and Southeast Asian lenses. Case for example, we did a research where our students, uh, when I was still in St. Louis, um, we had, uh, uh, Zoom wasn't even uh, available then, we, we did Skype lessons where the, the occupational science students in the classroom zoom in with uh, the occupational therapy students in the Philippines and they've had conversations about their experiences of occupations what are different what what are different ways by which they do their daily occupations and then they do conversations asynchronously learning from each other I had to make sure as an educator that I unpack 
and become reflexive of where I am when I talk to the Filipino students, what perspective do I use? And when I talk to my students as well here in the United States, am I using my Western lens or am I using my Southeast Asian lens? Because that's very, very important. You know, a lot of times there is a tendency for us to come in during cross doing cross-cultural culture cross-cultural research and other cultures having this notion of not unpacking our privilege and the tendency to try to view other people's cultures from our perspectives and making those comparisons this is very apparent in service learning when we go to another country and try to fix things for that other country rather than to use the opportunity to learn from that other country and yeah and Kelly is saying comparisons and judgments I think that's very very important to unpack and be reflective about as a researcher or even just as a clinician collaborating and doing research and practice with people from a variety of cultures yeah I think um I think that's great, Lynn. And I, I was thinking, so this is why I brought up the kind of within the US context, right? I think that, um, and, you know, all of our full disclosure. So my background is as a speech pathologist, right? But I think allied health in general and medicine in general, we even our own Western perspective is limited, right? It, you know, we know that historically we failed to include a wide um, component of our populations. And so when we think about that and then think about what does that mean when we think about um, other kind of um, other cultures outside of the US context, right? And I think we it's easier to recognize that as different cultures, whereas within the US context, we see it's, you know, it's it's about those judgments and what's deficient and what's, you know, because we don't do it a certain way. Like because our lens is kind of broken at the start. It's really hard to think about that. So I, I think that's really important what you shared. Um, thinking about making it a routine part of our practice to ask those broader questions about, um, you know, what culture or life or tradition or um, what's familiar on a very individual basis all the time, right? Clinically and in research. Um, so I guess I don't, I don't, there's not really a question in there. It's just kind of um, a comment thinking about that. I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add, Sammy, before I was going to ask another question, but it might take us. Yeah, I just want to briefly, I'm sorry, Sam, I just want to briefly go back to the notion of um, service learning, because a lot of times when when students do service learning or when faculty design service learning, the automatic notion is let's do it abroad. And when I ask what's the purpose of doing it abroad, is that for cultural competence or cultural critical consciousness. And I always say, can we not do this in our neighborhoods? We can learn so much about cultures from within our neighborhoods and untapped neighborhoods or neighborhoods we've never been before in other cities and states in the country. Why do we have to do it outside? And, and, and if we are going to do it outside, I think we need to really reflect and unpack that privilege when we go do cross-cultural research. Sam, sorry, I, I, um, you wanted to say something. Oh, no, no, I was just saying, go ahead, Kayla, ask the question. Sorry. Do you have anything you want to add, Catherine? No. Um, yeah, I think I love that. I think that is 
on point. I just, you know, so we're, we're talking about, um, you know, how we think about this clinically and in research. And so we're, you know, um, thinking about folks who might be considering research careers. What are some things you might recommend um, to kind of start thinking about this on the front end, right? To folks who are just kind of considering pursuing a research career. Sam, do you want to start? I am pursuing, so I'm trying to find the answer. <laughs> I think it's very important that, you know, I, when I teach research to students, I always, you know, it's, it's that backward design. Always start with your objectives and research questions. Why do you want to pursue this research? I think automatically for many um, students wanting to do research or pursue research studies, they always jump ahead to the methodology. What do, how do I want to do this research? Or what do I need to use as methods for this research? And then from the methodology that they've thought of, that's when they start thinking about what kinds of questions I, I might need to ask. I want to start, I want to do it from a backward design where you start with your research objectives. What do you want to study? And why do you want to study? And in, in, in the sense of cross-cultural research, what about culture and what aspects of culture or what aspects of cross-cultural research do you really want to understand? Because that, I think, will define the methodologies that you use. Are you going to use a purely qualitative methodology or a mixed methods methodology? Are you going to be interviewing people or are you going to be just observing people in their context? So, I, so it, 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 it has to be a reflective process of understanding what you want to know, and what you want to understand so you could choose the right methods, choose the right mentors, and choose the right place to do this research and the supports that you will need. Because otherwise, if you're too hang up or caught up by the methods and the people who will teach you, sometimes, you know, the purpose and rationale and, and research questions get diluted and you get lost in that process. I have just a quick, quick question, Lennon. Do, do we have to have that basic understanding of that culture? Do like some cultures, we are outsider to them. Some culture, we know them because we are part of them. And so do we have to at least have an understanding of that culture if we are trying to do some research within that context that we're not familiar with? I think that can be part of that research question is, you know, part of your research question can be to understand the perspective of that culture. I think the prerequisite is a certain level of humility and a certain mm -hmm. level of openness, because, you know, I always like saying, listen to listen to understand rather than listen to respond, because sometimes there is a notion that I'm studying this to understand the other person's culture, whereas we're all, we already have the bias or a preconceived notion of how we want to understand or a lens we want to use for this um, uh, uh, to understand this, this culture. So, you know, that's why, you know, in research, we have this a priori or post priori assumptions. I think we need to unpack the kinds of assumptions we have in biases, because otherwise we're coming in to that wanting to understand that culture as a research question already filled with privilege and bias to understanding that culture. I have a bit of a follow-up question as well related to that. So we've been talking a lot about 
about research and thinking about culture as occupational therapists and allied health professionals. And um, and Kelly had brought up a good point about that. You know, really, we have different. We all have different cultures um, and experiences who we grew up with and things that we did in our lives. And you know, selfishly, perhaps this with this question. Um, as I said before, my research is with young children with sickle cell disease, and that isn't a cultural background that I am a part of personally. Um, most of the people with sickle cell disease in the United States are Black or African American. So I was just thinking, you know, for people that want to do research um, with individuals that may look or have different life experiences than themselves, do you have any recommendations or th things that we should be considering right from the start? You know, I love the notion of narrative medicine. It's really borrowed from the perspective of phenomenology, where before we treat and measure outcomes of treatment, let's understand the narratives and experiences of the people we're treating. And you know, when before I develop, so um, one of my um, primary research lines is really developing the role, developing outcome measures and developing interventions to support the role of occupational therapists. Um, for functional literacy, and particularly for children with reading and learning disabilities. You know, when I first started this exploration, it was very, very important to me to immerse myself mm -hmm. in the experience of reading difficulties and learning disabilities. And so what we did, and we did this research in St. Louis, actually, is we spent, before I drafted the assessment tool and before I designed my intervention um, program, I spent hours and hours just sitting in classrooms observing children who have been sort of flagged or identified as potentially struggling uh, readers. And we just spent hours and hours, not even just interviewing or talking to the children, but just watching them in classrooms. How do they behave? Do they behave similarly or differently? When there is a reading task, how does the child, what are the manifestations of a particular struggle, etc.? I think it's very important to, to understand the lived experience of the, of the difficulty, of the challenge or the disability before we try to fix it right away or solve it. And sometimes that's lost in evidence-based practice that we, we just we just focus on the outcomes rather than the process and what are the mechanisms that might produce positive outcomes or results for an intervention. So I, I, I'm not recommending completely, um, um, uh, I'm not recommending completely to spend hours and hours and hours uh, uh, observing uh, clients, but I think it, there needs to be uh, uh, a process of just experiencing um, the experience or understanding the experience of, of the client in terms of the challenges they have. Um, it's, the, it's phenomenology. It's understanding the phenomenon or the lived experience of, of the individual um, uh, because of a condition or a disease or just everyday life. I hope that answers your question partly, um, Catherine. Yeah, I think so. I think this is something that we we are all really struggling with, or maybe not we all, maybe just me, maybe that's a projection. <laughs> um, but when we ask research questions, um, we don't necessarily belong to the community that we're trying to research. So I think that point of learning from, observing, trying to understand their experience to influence our questions from the get-go is a really important point that you touched on you know so so you told us in the beginning that you you know, have this anthropology background right and so that is normal 
in anthropology, right? Ethnography is a thing, watching it to understand people is the norm. And then medicine and health, it is not. And so I think about that. Say it again. It's reductive. It's really reductive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think about that, you know, I try to do a lot of community engaged work and really reframing, um, you know, I have to think a lot, you know, when we think about funding and the other things that we're expected to do as researchers, and then the things that we know and want and should do, they, they don't align well necessarily. And so I think that's the struggle. And, and I think to your point, Catherine, that like, you know, how do we make the case for the importance of that engagement piece? And I feel like this is something we're hearing a lot more about now, right, is how do we engage the community and how do we, um, instead of going in with the answer, go in with the question, you know, and, and ask the right question. So yeah, exactly, Sammy, having, an, you know, an open mind. Um, but so I think that's great. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did you, you want to add Catherine, before we go on? No, I was just going to say, I don't, I, I, if anybody else has any questions or what questions are we missing? I don't know, Kelly, if you had any other specific questions? Um, no, I, I guess I'm just still thinking about like, you know, how do we really push that narrative? And I think it's the same thing that you've been saying, right? Changing, I, I love what you said about narrative medicine and how to just shifting our own frame um, and then acknowledging the bias, which I, I feel like um, you guys have both said several times. So I'm just kind of processing. I think what we're missing really is that pause to ask, why are we doing this research? Because a lot of times we're so caught up by, I need to do some research and this is something I'm interested in. I'm just gonna do this. I think we need to sort of back up a little bit and just ask, why am I doing this? And am I doing this for the right reasons? And what biases am I bringing in to this experience? I think that's, that's very, very important. Sometimes in the life of a clinician, uh, just as an example, we become so automatic with our ways of doing that we start we stop reflecting on really why we're doing what we're doing in the clinic. And very similarly with research, why why are we doing what we're why are we studying this, and what will be the impact of this study um, to the profession and to practitioners and to people? And understanding that it you know. Like it can change your timeline, right? It takes longer to do that. Um, and I think, you know, as clinicians too, we feel like we've got all these kind of outside pressures to do things in a particular way, to track very specific things. So yeah, that flexibility is so important. Yeah, anybody have any questions? I feel like this has been um, wonderful. A lot of kind of food for thought here. Sammy or Lennon, any other final thoughts? Um, no, I think it's very important that we do this kind of research. I hope that, you know, um, in the in serving evidence-based practice, I think we need to include methodologies that not only are only very quantitative in nature, because sometimes cross-cultural research is really not very quantitative in nature. It can be mixed methods, but a lot of it is very qualitative. I'm happy that there's actually more and more OTs now pursuing graduate degrees and research doctorates 
to become methodologists, but a lot of them become quantitative methodologists. And I think it's still important that we balance that a little bit with qualitative methodology. Sometimes in evidence-based practice, qualitative research gets a, a, a lower sort of reputation or value because of generalizability of it without realizing that the purpose of this is to understand how we can create quantitative methodologies, outcomes and measures and processes that will help with evidence-based medicine. So I don't think in that sense that qualitative research is a less rigorous or less impactful research. It does inform evidence-based practice and it has its value and place in OT, in the, in OT research. You really can't maximize quantitative data without qualitative data, Absolutely. right? You cannot fully understand your data Absolutely. without adding that. And um, but you can still generalize it and put it out there. Right. We just can't. We're leaving so many questions on it. I mean, you know, like right. We can answer some questions, but you leave so much unanswered. So yeah, I think that's so important. Be interested to know the research questions that either of you are working on right now. So right now, my related to cross-cultural research, a lot of the questions that, that I have are really about whether the constructs that we're measuring from the assessment tool that I developed from a Western perspective are understood and measured from you know, the same lens or perspective in the Filipino lens. So we've just finished content validating this culturally adapted tool. It's very eye-opening because there really are a lot of constructs that are understood from a very different perspective from a different culture. And I, I use independence earlier as an example. Another example I can use is satisfaction because for us in the Western culture, satisfaction seems to have this notion of joy and pleasure in the experience. But for other cultures, they don't have the luxury to be satisfied. I just need to be content with how I'm doing this because a lot of people are relying on me to be able to do this. So that alone, that it doesn't matter if I loved how I did it or if, I'm, if, I'm, if I have joy in doing it, I just need to be content with how I did it. So you know, these are some of the questions we're asking are that when we translate the terminology that we develop from a cultural, from a Western perspective, does it apply in a similar manner from, from the lens of another culture? Uh, just to acknowledge, uh, Madeline, FYI, uh, taught me English. She's one of my instructor back in 2013, <laughs> something like that. So I'm very honored that she's here. So yeah, to answer your question, I don't really have specific questions related to the research and methodology, but I've been interested in exploring aging in place and aging out of place and how is that influenced based on the Middle Eastern uh, uh, individuals? Like what is aging in place? Aging in place in the US is very different than aging in place in, in Saudi and, and in Saudi Arabia. It's all about the collectivism and, and the family and the structure in the US. It's all about the independency and the individual living uh, away from his family or whatever, or living in a skilled nursing facility versus, you see, those are different components. And as far as aging out of place, this is specifically looking at Middle Eastern who are trying or who are who emigrated to different countries. And that's a whole different component when they're trying to emigrate, trying to manage their, the system that they now live in 
while trying to figure out their daily life and exercise and the time and so on and on. So that's that's what I've been interested in in terms of like it. It's not really a specific question, but it's more like a broad umbrella that I've been kind of like hooked by. Your questions will become more clear, Sammy. Fingers crossed. <laughs> it's a process, yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. I, I don't think we talk a lot about uh, culture and cross-cultural research in many fora. So just thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here and share some of my knowledge and learn from everyone. Yeah. Thank you.